volume level is good. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. My voice sounds booming. Let's, we might want to drop it down a little, little touch. I don't know. All right. Appreciate the uh, guest speakers on Sunday filling in in my place and the sickness and everything else. The Lord showed me some pride issues that have to be dealt with. I can no longer use the word never. In uh, I started preaching in 1990, 1991, I guess, and I have never missed a Bible class for being sick until this past Sunday. And uh, 3,294 Bible classes. Is that pride? Six shy of 3,300. And... Uh, I had to call in sick. And you know, I woke up tempted to come in anyway and get everybody else sick. So instead, I stayed home and just got Sharon sick. Anyway, appreciate those that filled in for me. And uh, now we can go another 3,294 more Bible classes before I call in sick a second time. <laughs> I hope we heard a trumpet long before that. Uh, John Wesley, or is it Charles? John preached 40,000 sermons in his life. And so I figure at 3,300, I've, I've got a ways to go to get to... to, get to uh, the colonel claims 10,000 on the website. I don't know. It, it seems like he's got to have more than 10,000 on there. But anyway, I don't think it counts for anything. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. One of the great I am passages of the Gospel of John. I am the Good Shepherd. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to give each believer priest the opportunity to confess sins, to quiet your heart, and humble yourself for the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together, for the health and the strength to be here this morning and the blessings you provide. We lift up those that are um, still dealing with the sickness, the ongoing sickness, and we ask that you might uh, have that measure of grace to sustain the spirit. Father, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I pray that we would learn these lessons about having the treasure in earth and vessels, that we would recognize the surpassing value of the grace that it is in you and not ourselves. Father, set aside distractions now as we get our first look at John chapter 10. We begin our uh, introductory study to the Good Shepherd, and we thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I will continue in one more never statement. My phone has never rung in the pulpit. There we go. Take care of that. It will happen someday. And then you will all find out my embarrassing ringtone, but it won't be today. All right. John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. We're going to focus today on the thief and the robber. We won't even get to the good shepherd in today's class, but we will focus on thieves and robbers. He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. 
But he, when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. This is the characteristic of shepherding, and since we're not uh, agriculturally minded here in the big city of Austin, we'll do what we can to illustrate this and, and uh, teach uh, what this was like in the ancient world. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not, follow, they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but uh, they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. All right, so there's the first six verses, and that's pretty much what we're going to cover today. When it moves on in verses 7 and following, Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. Now, this is probably the least known of the great I am passages in the Gospel of John. I think it's least known because everybody's eager to race on ahead to get to verse 11 with I am the good shepherd. Um, but prior to the shepherding illustration comes the door statement. And we want to understand what that's about as well, uh, particularly because this gets mistaught. And when it gets mistaught, people get scared. And people get scared because they think that this is a parable uh, or this is a, a metaphor for salvation. And it is not a metaphor for salvation. And if we can uh, clue you into that, then it makes a whole lot more sense. But if you think this is a metaphor for salvation, then you have a problem with, well, what's this in and out message in verse 9? Uh, I, you know, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And they get all excited. Oh, look, that's a salvation picture. Well, no, saved is used for much more than just simply receiving eternal life and going to heaven when you die. In fact, that is the minority view on salvation in terms of just the raw number of, of the words employed. Um, this is not having to do with receiving eternal life and going to heaven when you die, being made righteous and all of that, that that's associated with your redemption. Because it's an in and out. When you get saved, that's a one-way door. When you get saved, there's no getting out. That is uh, eternal, secure, forever, once and for all, uh, uh, secure in Christ. So this in and out has to be something else besides uh, salvation as we understand it. And, and here you find, well, the purpose for going out is to find pasture. That's the purpose for going out. If you don't go out, then you don't eat. Uh, you don't pasture, you don't graze in the sheepfold uh, because you exhaust the uh, the grass, you exhaust the food supply within the, the pen, within the confines of those walls in very short order. In fact, you uh, want to have the sheep very well fed so that when they go into the sheepfold, they don't eat the grass upon which they uh, they lie down. And so, uh, and that's just a matter of training and routine, and sheep are dumb animals, and you get them into a routine, and they follow the routine, and they get used to that. So... Almost like a local church <laughs> where, again, sheep are dumb animals and they get used to. Am I going to get in trouble this morning? I'm a little frisky now that I'm back to health again. Um, but you, they get accustomed to the way things are and the routine and the way things we do. And, and so if something upsets the schedule, wait a minute, now we're out of sorts because this isn't what we, you know, I hope there was some grace on Sunday with flexibility. And I don't even know how the announcements went and the singing or anything like that, but uh, we get into habits, we get into patterns, and you can train sheep. And that's what happens here, is the sheepfold is where the sheep are brought for the night. They're kept in a secure pen, and because they're in a confined area with with limited access, with a doorkeeper, we're going to be introduced to the doorkeeper here in verse 3, and uh, you can, you can uh, limit your staffing very easily. Only one guy has to stay up all night and watch these sheep. The rest can actually go home to their wives or go back to their tents or do what they're doing and come back in the morning, get their sheep, go back to work. 
All right. So we'll we'll talk about that and the neat aspect of that where multiple flocks can be kept in the same in the same sheepfold. And that becomes a, a pattern there as well. So all of that is coming up in the great shepherding aspects of, of this chapter. But he begins by introducing with thieves and robbers. So point one, we're going to have four main items in this uh, unit. Episode six, the good shepherd. There'll be four main points. Point one is the introduction. Jesus introduces the good shepherd discourse with an introduction to thieves and robbers. An introduction to thieves and robbers. And actually, I meant to rewrite that. I didn't want to use introduces an introduction. And I failed to... Uh, failed to remedy my redundancy. Jesus introduces the Good Shepherd Discourse with a narrative of thieves and robbers. How about that? Talking about thieves and robbers. You know, here's a clue. If they threw a brick through the window at 3 o'clock in the morning and are crawling in through the back window of your house, they may not own the house. It's at least worth looking into. All right? Uh, Whereas if they come through the front door, they have a key, they seem to own the place, that's another clue. And so we see this here. He who does not enter by the door into the fold, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. And I love this passage. I love it for a lot of different reasons, but one of which I love is because of the pluralism of our stupid culture that says, oh, there's many ways. Well, yeah, there's the way he designs, and then there's the way of the thieves and the robbers. <laughs> so don't tell me that they're all just as valid and they're all just as fine. And you can get to heaven through all these other alternate routes. No, if they're coming through another way, some other way, um, then uh, he doesn't belong there. And that's the case here. Now, the venue, this is the thing, the venue, subpoint A, the venue for thieves and robbers is the sheepfold. This is the area of conflict in the angelic conflict, and we want to be aware of that. The venue for thieves and robbers is the sheepfold. I think uh, we, w- we want to be on guard in the warnings in Scripture that guard against wolves, like Acts chapter 20, passages of that nature. Uh, they don't warn you about the wolves that are out there in the woods, out in the wild and so forth. The warning is against the wolves in sheep's clothing. And why are the wolves in sheep's clothing? Because they're trying to infiltrate amongst the sheep. And the uh, sphere of battle in the angelic conflict many times comes right to the local church itself. As it were, the sheepfold. And the sheepfold should be a place of refuge. And, and, and we experience that. We, we have that sense here at Austin Bible Church. We love the fact that we can come to church on a Wednesday and have a, a refuge, as it were, in the midst of the chaos of the cosmos. Right? And... Uh, The battle rages and evil is all over, and yet we come to uh, Austin Bible Church and there's a refuge. There's a a sanctuary. There's a a breath of fresh air and a a place to to be with family and to be with loved ones and be with the saints and and all of this. And and so it it becomes a a refuge, but at the same time, we don't want to let down our guard and fail to remember that at the same time, yes, it's a provision for rest. But there can still be infiltrators. There can still be attacks that you have to have your eyes open for. Because uh, we're most vulnerable when we let our guard down. We're most vulnerable when we think we're okay. And that's simply a, a pride application. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. All right, now I'm not going to do a word study with you this morning on aule, A-U-L-E. The Greek word for sheepfold is not really a word unique to sheep. 
Uh, aule is uh, is a pretty generic term that applies to any uh, courtyard and, and is more frequently referenced as a courtyard or a court. It specifically is a st- open-air structure of walls. And um, the only reason we call it a fold or a sheepfold here is because this particular aule is modified. It is an aule of the sheep. And you don't put sheep into a bank or you don't put sheep into a courtyard. You don't put sheep into a temple or a palace. You put a sheep, uh, you know, sheep get put in the sheep fold. And so an aule uh, to probatu, the aule of the sheep, is a pen or a sheepfold, uh, a structure whereupon which the sheep can be confined and protected. The much more common uses of the term will apply to the, the temple, Solomon's temple. And you have the women's court and the court of the Gentiles and you have the outer court. And you have other uh, provinces there and even the king's, uh, the court of the king. It's used in the Septuagint when in Isaiah 1, uh, Yahweh says, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Say it's a very common term for court. That's the much more common translation. But because the noun here is modified with the two probatu of the sheep, uh, obviously uh, you're not putting sheep into a court or courtyard. You're keeping them in a pen, and so that's that's fairly well understood. It's the same thing. Language doesn't. It's universal for language. You know, you live in a house, but if you attach dog in front of house then you've got a doghouse or birdhouse or whatever. And, and just with a, a attached adjective, you've changed the, the concept entirely. And that's what we have here. All right. So this pen, though, I want to emphasize this pen is supposedly a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place where they can rest for the night. And that's where they are in danger. And they're in danger not from wolves, they're not in danger from lions or bears or the uh, the beasts in the wild that the shepherd keeps his eye out for during the day when he's out there feeding them and watering them and leading them to pasture. Uh, it's an entirely different animal they're in danger from back in the pen. And that's the uh, the thief and the robber that comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And we'll be looking at them here today. So, again, what I want to stress with this first point is that... Um, don't let your guard down when you're in the when you're in the aule, when you're in the sheep pen. You know, you're in church. This is a place of family, a comfort, rest, and protection. But thieves and robbers can still come in, and that's where uh, we have to have our eyes open. The shepherd has to be awake. The doorkeeper has to be awake. Uh, attendants and so forth in a congregation, we'd call them deacons, uh, have to have their eyes open to watch for the thieves and the robbers that come in, the, the sheep stealers that come in. All right, vocabulary now. Kleptes and klepto. We get our stealing words in the Greek. So point B, let's introduce ourselves to the thief and the verb of stealing. Kleptes is a noun for the thief. comes from the verb klepto. 28.13. Probably heard the term kleptomaniac or something like that. Somebody that can't help themselves. Uh, they just, they're constant thieves. They, they swipe things just for the sake of swiping things. Uh, they maybe don't want them, but it's just kind of fun to do, so they take stuff. All right, but a kleptase is a is a the tase ending is very frequently uh, a occupational ending. A, it's like uh, er in English. A farmer is one who farms. A um, baker is one who bakes. Um, a preacher is one who preaches. It's like the er ending in English. The tase ending in Greek is oftentimes occupational. Uh, a prophetes is a prophet, somebody who prophetuo prophesies. A kleptes is a stealer, somebody who steals, because the verb is klepto. 
So 28.12 is the Strong's number for kleptase. Uh, 28.13 is the Strong's number for klepto. You've got the noun and the verb. And it's interesting because we have a parallel between uh, thieves and shepherds and a parallel that's not even a biblical parallel. A parallel that actually goes back throughout Greek secular literature. All the way back to Homer in the Iliad. He contrasts shepherds and thieves. And it just so happens that uh, Logos Bible Software released a uh, edition of Homer's Iliad. And they did so um, not only in the Greek, but also in an English translation. And so in Homer's Iliad, chapter 3, verse 11, when he talks about the... um, the south wind uh, sheddeth a mist over the peak of the mountain, a mist that the shepherd loveth not, but that to the robber is uh, better than night. You know, the robber loves the mist, loves the fog, loves the because it conceals what he's doing. The shepherd, on the other hand, doesn't like the fog, doesn't like the mist, doesn't like his vision obscurity. He wants a clear line of sight where he can see the uh, the beasts where they are. So uh, anyway, this is the phileo love, the thief. Uh, has a phileo love for this mist, the kleptos, the klepte right there, uh, has this phileo love, a rapport love, an intimacy. He he loves the fog and the mist. It, it embraces him and hugs him like a, you know, like a like a lover or something. That's the phileo rapport love. But the uh, shepherd, the poimene, uh, not so much. You know, he can do without that because it's it's obscuring what it is he's trying to keep an eye on. So this contrast between shepherds and thieves, you know, this is older than the uh, cartoons with Sam the Sheepdog and and Wiley Coyote. All right. You've got shepherds and you've got thieves and uh, and they are constantly in conflict with one another. All right. Now, we've got a whole slew of uh, Old Testament passages, New Testament passages and so forth. It's uh, it's a pretty basic Sunday school kind of study that uh, thieves aren't good. Right. Stealing is bad. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. All right. So the vocabulary itself is not so um, it's not the interesting part of it. But the the context where the vocabulary gets used becomes very vivid because beyond the fact that, okay. Stealing is a violation of God's commands. Stealing is a, is a pride application. Stealing is a, is a dissatisfaction with what the Father provided and your insistence upon taking what, what you want to have, right? God gave it to somebody else and, and you want it. So uh, it's, it's a pride application. Beyond that, though, we have some very clear doctrinal applications, even uh, prophetic Second Advent applications, because when Jesus Christ returns, what's the description? He will come as a thief in the night. It is one of the most common descriptions of the second advent of Jesus Christ and the nature of his uh, coming, which is going to catch people by surprise. And so those are passages that maybe we're going to want to uh, we're going to want to spell out as well. So anyway, we got these. uh, The Septuagint parallels include the verb ganab. G-A-N-A-B is a verb. Ganab, number 1589. And the noun ganab. Switch around your A's. Ganab is the verb, ganab is the noun, and uh, you double your, your middle new there, your middle n, so you turn it from your verb to your noun there. Anyway, those are your standard Hebrew terms for stealing or thief. That's your term in, uh, in the Ten Commandments when it says, thou shalt not ganab, you shall not steal. 
All right. Real quickly then, uh, Matthew 6. Let's run through these. It won't take long. And, and most of them you're familiar with. Most of them I could start the verse and you could finish them. Because you've heard them before. But Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things we recognize with respect to thieving is that it's common to this fallen cosmos, but it will not take place in glory. There's no thieves in heaven. So we read in Matthew 6:19, "Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where uh, moth and rust destroy, and where kleptomaniacs, thieves, the, the klepti, the plural of kleptes, where klepti break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right. So our introduction to thieving is in a context where um, we want to have in perspective our attitude towards things, towards possessions. And what is it that we hold dear? And if something is stolen from us, is that devastating? In some cases, I've had loved ones that have been burglarized and so forth. And part of the, the turmoil, the trauma, is not maybe the, even the, the dollar value of things that are gone, but even just the, 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 the violation, the, the sense that, you know, strangers have been in your home and have been, it's just a sense of vulnerability and, and it's, a, it's a horrible thing. Well, and obviously in heaven that doesn't take place, but it helps us to put in perspective what are we really attached to? What are we citizens of? What is it that we don't want to let go of? And, and why not? If, if we're leaving it all behind anyway. Uh, if, if you knew for a, without a shadow of a doubt that the trumpet's going to sound this afternoon at 424 p.m. Central Standard Time, right? And you get burglarized at 3 o'clock, <laughs> you know, do you even call 911? Do you bother with a police report? Do you care at that point? Or do you just kind of laugh and say, wow, isn't that something? Well, anyway, I'm not trying to minimize crime or, or if you've been burglarized or, or things like that. We still lock our doors or take common, you know, we don't walk down dark alleys with $100 bills hanging out of our pockets and tempt the Lord in, in that, but we want to uh, be shrewd as serpents, certainly. All right. So there's our introduction to thieves. And it's a, it's a wonderful reminder that it's all earthly, that when we pass uh, from uh, this realm into glory, uh, there's no thieves and there's no moth and rust and the things of corruption that uh, do not touch the eternal state. Over to chapter 19, our next uh, statement on thieving. Lord had to deal with it. And... Um, because even his own ministry treasurer was a thief. But before we get to that, actually, that's a later chapter. Uh, chapter 19. Here's the uh, rich young ruler who was as righteous in his own eyes as he could be. And he pretty well was convinced that uh, he had a first class ticket to heaven. That he'd done everything right. He was, uh, he was the Paul of his generation that uh, said, hey, as to the righteousness of the law, I'm blameless. So what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And this, see, this is the big problem with people trying to work their way to glory. Maybe in their minds they've made it. But there's always something, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there's always something that would disqualify from the eternal standard of perfection. 
So Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. That's God's absolute standard of righteousness. If you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Work your way there. And this is tongue-in-cheek irony on Jesus' part, because no one can do it. But he says, hey, you want to do it? Do it. Work your way to glory. So he said, well, which ones? (laughs) You know how arrogant that is? You're going to pick and choose which ones you're going to follow to earn your way to glory? How about all of them? But he says, which ones? And so here's Jesus saying, okay, we'll give you a selection. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not klepto. You shall not bear false witness. All right, you shall not steal. It's a recitation from the uh, Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, huh, bingo, I've done all that. I'm great. Look at me. Well, he says, okay, one last thing. One last thing. And, of course, it's the item he can't handle. It's the item that he's, he's uh, got a hang-up on in terms of his coveting, in terms of his treasure. And uh, give away all your possessions. Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Just give it all away. Everything but the, the tunic on your back and follow after me. And the man couldn't handle it. He went away grieving, for he was one who owed much property. So, uh, anyway, it's a wonderful principle there, but it's another application of klepto in the Gospels. All right, over to chapter 24 and verse 43. We'll have more to teach on on that one in chapter 19 when we get to that point. 24:43. This is the uh, Matthew 24. We're looking ahead to second advent. And he says, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Now, we do know that there is a countdown of days because of the 70th week prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. However, you can't just simply mark your calendar and say, okay, the treaty with Antichrist was signed here. It's a seven-year covenant. And uh, we just start counting down 1,260 days. Circle that on your calendar and say, here's second advent. Can't do that. Reason why is because days get cut short, actually. He preempts the, that uh, calendar. And uh, <coughs> we're told elsewhere that uh, reason being is there was a threat of human extinction there. And God won't allow that to take place. Unless those days had been cut short, all flesh would have been destroyed. So even at second advent, you can't just simply count 1,260 days from the signing of the treaty with Antichrist. So be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. That's the the horrible thing about burglars is they don't uh, RSVP. You know, they they don't send you a note to say, oh, by the way, you know, it was a couple Sundays ago our neighbor got broken into and we came home from church and the police were all there and talking to the neighbors and different things. And and the burglars don't uh, send you the notice to say, by the way, next Sunday, 445, I'm, I'm going to be there. They don't do that. You know, if they did, then you could be sitting there and, and take care of business. So, uh, any event. This is all common sense. and uh, for the, But it's an illustration. It's an illustration. The underhandedness, the sneakiness of thieves is an illustration that we are to be ready at all times. We never know when it's going to happen. So we need to be ready at all times. You must be ready. You must be on the alert. The Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think that he will. And that's a fun verse, too. Every time somebody tells me that they know what day the rapture is going to take place, I say, nope, you can't know it. Because if you think you know, you violate this verse and other passages and so forth. It's not a rapture passage here, by the way, but... Principle still holds true in the concept of imminency. All right, 2764. 
And uh, this is where after he's crucified, after he's buried, the Pharisees are a little bit nervous. They're a little bit scared. Reason being is they've heard his too many of his messages. And even though they hate him, they know he's the Christ. And even though uh, they hate him and they know he's the Christ, they, they want to cover their tracks. They want to try to find an excuse that they can publicly offer up for Easter Sunday. And so they go to Pilate and they say to him, Sir, we remember when he was still alive that that deceiver said, Oh, that bugs me every time I read that. They call him the deceiver. This is calling good evil and evil good. And this is, uh, you know, woe be unto them. He is the Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's the adversary who's the liar from the beginning in any event. We remember when that deceiver said, after three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Now, why are they so concerned about the third day? <laughs> if they really think the disciples are going to steal the body, uh, why, don't po- why don't they post guards for a week, a month, uh, you know, a period of time? Why don't they arrest the disciples? They're not concerned about, you know, day four. They're not concerned on Monday that uh, Peter and John are going to show up and steal a body. Why aren't they concerned about the the body being stolen? Well, because the promise was the resurrection on the third day, the sign of Jonah uh, being fulfilled and all of that. So otherwise, his disciples may come and klepto him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. See, and they're, they're terrified of it. And they want to be able to put an excuse in place ahead of time. And finally, 2813 is the last use there. And uh, they bribe the guards, saying, well, we fell asleep. And uh, they give them a large sum of money to the soldiers and say, you're to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. They, the disciples showed up. They klepto Jesus' body. We were sleeping. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. Yeah, right. Actually, <laughs> go ahead and let the story get spread around. They're not going to cover up anything with the governor because they want the governor to, to get rid of these witnesses too. <laughs> and uh, penalty to Roman soldiers for falling asleep on duty was not good. All right. Fall on your sword or we'll do it for you kind of thing. So uh, they took the money and did as they had uh, been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. From the day that Matthew penned the gospel. And even in the, the 21st century, the rumors are still out there that, oh, well, they stole his body. Or, oh, he never died. He just swooned. He just passed out. And they thought he was dead. They buried him. And he woke up and left and things like that. Lived happily ever after with Mary Magdalene in England somewhere. and <laughs> Or was it France? I forget. Anyway, that's Da Vinci Code insanity. All right. The Matthew-Luke passages are largely uh, parallel. I don't think we need to turn and look at those. John 10 is the passage here with the Good Shepherd uh, context in the thieves and robbers. And that's the, the important thing to note there is that it's the guard, it's, the, uh, uh, it's a parable. It's, a, it's a, uh, a figure of speech that's designed to teach a reality. And another feature, let me just grab the term here in John 10. And you can use this, by the way, you can point to a ton of people and say, can I show you something? And just have them open to John 10 and put their finger on a verse. And um, verse 6 of John 10, this figure of speech, 
this paranoia, paranoiam, I guess. I'm mispronouncing it here. It's not a parable. It's not a parabole. It is a uh, paroimian. This paroimian, and we'll do some work on that. Um, it's a figure of speech. And this is the thing, too. You're going to encounter folks, and they're going to want to turn the whole Bible into a, into a parable. The whole Bible's an allegory. Everything's all just a figure. It's all just, you know, and, and there was not really an Adam and Eve. It was just a figure of speech. It was just an allegory, a symbolism of obedience and disobedience and a picture of whatever. And you stop them saying, no, it's a bunch of garbage. The Bible does contain parables. The Bible does contain allegories. It contains figures of speech. And when it contains them, it tells you about them. Like right here. So put your finger there and say, okay, this figure of speech. And say, all right, right there. That one there, I believe, is a figure of speech. I don't think there was a literal thief and a literal robber and a literal doorkeeper and a literal shepherd. This was a parable, a figure of speech, a, a, uh, an allegory designed to teach a truth. Right here in this chapter. But that's not the whole Bible. Adam and Eve, that's true. And Jesus Christ considered them as true. And they have to be true or you're not saved. And then, maybe by then you'll get people to uh, get their attention. Well, what do you mean I'm not saved? Okay? <laughs> All right. Because if Adam and Eve aren't real, then we're not in Adam. And if we're not in Adam, how can we be in Christ? How can we have the provision of eternal life? See, the, the provision for eternal life in, in Christ is the provision against the condemnation of in Adam. And, and that requires the literal Adam and Eve and the, the reality of, of Genesis 3. All right. Beyond John 10, you've got John 12:6, And this is the reference to Judas. Iscariot, the treasurer, and uh, he gets his nose out of joint because Mary is spending too much money. They, this is beyond, uh, this is not a budget item in their uh, ministry. In the perfume that she's anointing Jesus' feet with is just way too costly. And uh, he said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? See, well, he wasn't concerned about that. He couldn't care less about the poor. We're told in verse 6 that he was actually a kleptase and he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it, and he was skimming the profits. All right. Now, beyond the uses in the Gospels, the epistles give us the rest of what we're going to look at here. Romans 2.21, Romans 13.9. I think uh, some of these, again, are going to be very familiar to you. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that you shall not steal, do you steal? You who preach do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And so forth. In other words, the Gentile, the Jewish uh, religious depravity is uh, no better than the Gentile irreligious depravity or immoral depravity. Uh, Romans 13.9, again, it's a restatement of uh, Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments. is part of how we love one another. We're commanded to love one another. How do we do that? Well, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't murder, don't covet. Those are all indicators of an absence of agape love for your fellow brother and sister in Christ. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. First uh, Corinthians six ten. That's an interesting one because it's a passage that no thief, homosexual, murderer, and so forth has entrance into the kingdom of heaven. 
We taught this uh, years ago in 1 Corinthians. We'll review it in our recapping lessons coming up. Uh, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers shall not inherit the kingdom of God. All of these are descriptions of the fallen uh, sin nature in unregenerate humanity and the things they do. Now, what's interesting, though, is the answer to that is not to quit doing those things. The answer to that is to become regenerate through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. It doesn't say you quit stealing so you're not a thief anymore. It says you got saved. You got saved. And whatever you were before salvation, you're not anymore. You're now a saint by calling in Jesus Christ. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And so uh, entrance into glory or uh, being banned from glory and being sent to hell is not on the basis of your behavior. Not on the basis of whatever you've stolen, whatever you've fornicated, whatever you've idolatrated, whatever you've adulterated or anything like that. It's about faith in Christ. All right, Ephesians 4.28, let him who steals steal no more. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 4. Um, that's, uh, again, a second advent context where we're not to be, uh, we're not walking in darkness so as to be overtaken by a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come as a thief. So it's a good reminder. Let me just highlight it for you, though, because, again, you want to be able to put your finger on it and answer a question for somebody. 1 Thessalonians 4 is rapture. 1 Thessalonians 5 is second advent. And if people try to confuse them, you've got to straighten out and say, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Rapture is seven years before second advent, and here's why. And you, you ought to be able to show the rapture passage with the trumpet and the shout and the snatching up in the air, and all of that is in chapter 4. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then it goes on in chapter 5 to talk about the day of the Lord. As to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Destruction has nothing to do with chapter 4. Did you see any destruction in chapter 4 when the Lord himself descends with a shout, a voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Where is the destruction in that? <laughs> where is the destruction in context of the rapture for the bride? There is none. Destruction is the wrath of God on the earth in the, uh, the day of the Lord, the tribulation of Israel, and uh, the things associated with the second advent. So they're crying out peace and safety. You know, There's no wonder that the church can be raptured tonight. The world can cry out for peace and safety for tomorrow. They already are. The world will embrace Antichrist like you won't believe. Time Magazine, Man of the Year, seven years in a row. Guarantee it. <laughs> That'll come to an end, of course, at Armageddon. And uh, probably Time Magazine will come to an end at Armageddon. I'm, I'm suspecting. <laughs> they won't have any editors left, I'm, I'm guessing. After uh, the millennium, when only believers enter into the millennial kingdom. All right, but you, brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but be alert and be sober. So we are not... There's a, there's a we and they contrast in every verse there from 1 through 11. And that's, uh, that's important. So in chapter 4, you got rapture. Chapter 5, you got second advent. And you want to be able to keep those straight. 
All right, the rest of those, 1 Peter 4, 15, 2 Peter 3, 10, Revelation 3, 3, Revelation 16, 15. We can, uh, we can let those go. All right, now beyond the thief is the robber. The lace days. We've got thieves and robbers. So point C is robber. These are the uh, rascals that were crucified on the left and the right of Jesus. Um, robber is a kind word for it. They were murderers. They were uh, terrorists. Uh, revolutionary types. These are not just the the thief was the sneaky one. The thief was like the cat burglar, the the uh, breaking your home but not there to fight. The the lace ace was a man of violence. He robbed you because he was picking your pockets from the, your dead body. He was uh, he he he'd kill you or he'd knock you out, leave you for dead, take all your possessions, and so forth. <clears throat> just like kleptase is a very well attested term. All the way back to the ancient Greek writers, including Sophocles, Herodotus, Josephus uses it. Josephus even uses it in parallel to a term. Um, oh, can't remember the term now. But he used it in parallel to a term that later became known as assassin. He spoke about the assassins that, uh, and he used lastes in parallel with assassins. Um, Plato used the term, and he used the term for sea robbers, and later on uh, it became uh, known as pirates, what we get the English word pirate, came from the lastes. New Testament passages, again, there's no shortage of them. Uh, the two lastei that were on the left and the right of Jesus on the cross, Matthew 21:13. Actually, they also have reference in Luke 10 to the parable of the... Uh, of the uh, Good Samaritan. But in Matthew 21, 13. When uh, Jesus was flipping over tables and driving out the money changers. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a lastai uh, lair, a den, a uh, this was the bandits' hideout. This was the bandits' headquarters, a fortified stronghold from which the terrorists would launch their attacks. It was also the stronghold in which they stockpiled their armaments, their financing, their funds, and all the rest. You are making it a lastai, robber's den, a terrorist, what we'd call today, uh, in our terrorist uh, mindset, we'd call it a, uh, a cell uh, headquarters. Then in 2655, um, interestingly enough, Pilate wants to release him, and they demand Barabbas instead. And guess what Barabbas was? He was a lastace. He was a terrorist. He was um, a revolutionary who was murdering Roman officials, trying to stir up rebellion in the province of Judea. All right. Um, 2655, they come to arrest him in the garden and they say, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a lay stace? They actually put a counterterrorism team together to go arrest Jesus in the garden and he was unarmed. He was just sitting there praying, which is interesting. All right, 27, 38 and 44. These are the uses there where they crucified with him two lay stai, one on the right, one on the left. And the Lestai who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. This is before one of them had a repentant heart and uh, actually changed his uh, attitude towards the Christ. 
both of them were involved in the slander, as recorded in Matthew 27. All right, then you got Mark 11, Mark 14, Mark 15. Those are largely parallel. Uh, Luke 10, and then Luke is where we get the uh, the Good Samaritan. And remember, this man's on a journey, and he gets robbed and left for dead. And that's what I want to communicate here in terms of the violence on the uh, thieves and robbers that break into the sheepfold. They have no care if you get hurt or not. If you live or die, it doesn't bother them at all. All right, their attitude, their the cheapness of human life is nothing to them. We see that illustrated here. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among Lestai, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And then, of course, the various folks come by. So, um, the use in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who had fell into the hands of the laced eye, the robber's hands. All right. And then the last application, 2 Corinthians 11.26, when Paul talks about his dangers, dangers from his countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers at sea, dangers on land. And he says, I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from laced eye, robbers, highwaymen, banditos. All right. They're not all Spanish banditos, but there's, you know what I'm saying. All right. Dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, on the sea, among false brethren. See, and that's what Jesus is talking about with the, the sheepfold. That the, the, the venue for this is the sheepfold. It's when the sheep are put away at night and you would think, okay, things are safe. We'll come back in the morning. Well, while you're sleeping, what's going on? The thieves and the robbers are coming down from another way. That's the, the impact on this. All right. If you want to do more work on thieves and robbers, I recommend R.C. Trench. Trench wrote a book back in the 1800s on synonyms of the New Testament. He did some wonderful work on terms that would otherwise be confusing. He did uh, great work on the difference between agape and phileo, for example. Uh, he did great work on uh, the difference between... Um, Oh, just anything that, that has room for confusion in English, he breaks down the synonyms. And one of the things he developed was this study on thieves and robbers. I think in the interest of time, R.C. R.C. Trench. Um, R.C. What is the R? It doesn't matter what the R.C. stands for. Chevenot, I think, is the French middle name. R.C. I can't think of it. And um, anyway, it's paragraph XLIV, 44, section 44 in, in Trench is on Kleptase and Lastase. And it's a, it's a pretty worthwhile thing to read through. I think for our interest on time this morning and for my scratchy voice, we'll let that go. Why is the thief in there? Is the thief sneaking in to have fun? No, he's sneaking in to do damage. The thief's purpose in the fold is to steal, kill, and destroy. Glance with me down to verse 10. There is no good reason for him to be there. And he actually doesn't belong there. It's like there's no good reason for uh, young people, teenagers or whoever, to be roaming the streets at 2 in the morning. Right? It's, oh, well, it's fun. Our friends are out there. We're hanging out. We're... No. 
curfew, come home. There's no, nothing good at that age happens at that time of night. <laughs> nothing good. And this thief coming in is not there for any good reason. We're told in verse 10 to steal, kill, and destroy. The steal, of course, is klepto. We've been looking at that. Killing is the verb thuo. Interesting about thuo, there's lots of verbs to kill, but thuo is a word for, it's just basically a word for slaughter. It's like, it's, it's a butchering term for slaughtering of an animal. And you might slaughter, you might thuo for a sacrificial purpose, or you might thuo just for dinner, right? This is the strange thing, because we're, we're modern. We don't kill our dinners. Uh, there's there's some, some company somewhere that killed our dinners for us. So we, we go to H-E-B, and it's already shrink-wrapped, and it's very ground, you know, the beef is already ground beef. And yeah, yeah okay, it, it used to be a cow once upon a time, but we only, we only know that academically. We never looked into the cow's eyes, and we never made friends with the cow. We never slit the cow's throat and cut the cow into pieces. Has anybody done that? I've never done that. All right. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we get Ralph Braun back in town. We can hear his farm boy stories, and we'll learn about choking chicken necks and, and things like that. But I'm, that's, that's your old pastor. That's Ralph's farm boy stories. I'm a city boy, and I, I have not uh, killed anything I've eaten or eaten anything I've killed. Uh, and then the term for destruction is apolumi. And this is our term for destruction or our term for perishing. This is a term that actually has eternal consequences because it's a term that relates to our, uh, what we are rescued from when we receive eternal life. That God so loved the world, whoever believeth in Him should not perish, should not be eternally subject to this de- eternal destruction. Apolumi, number 622. So the purposes of the thief and the robber is entirely destructive. And now this is consistent with the woe message that Ezekiel leveled on the faithless shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel 34. Now, because of the interest of time, I'm going to hold off. And uh, I'm I'm eight minutes early, but I'm going to see about saving my voice for tonight. Next week, and if I forget, remind me before we move on to the next point, we want to read through Ezekiel 34. Because um, this idea of stealing and killing and destroying is, uh, is accomplished in many cases by the spiritual leadership of a local church. And the metaphor is a thief coming in and taking what he wants to take, killing what he doesn't want to take, and, and trampling the, or destroying the fold itself so it's no longer useful as a fold. Um, you know, it's, it's better. You don't have to break in a second time if you destroy the place the first time you're in there, right? So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. But we'll, we'll discuss the nature of uh, stealing, killing, and destroying that's consistent with Ezekiel 34 because that's the backdrop for the Good Shepherd passage that we get to in, in verses 11 and following. So anyway, that's what we'll do one week from today. Any questions on this? Any follow-up? Anything that I went through too quickly? All right, then. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for sustaining my throat. 
We uh, continue to look to you for your faithfulness and your, uh, your guidance as we look ahead. Pray for the immediate application on, on my behalf, on the deacon's behalf, and, and all the believers at Austin Bible Church, that you would keep our eyes open to the klepti and the, le- and the laced eye. And, Father, highlight uh, those that are coming in here for, for no good reason um, and, uh, and equip us to deal with those circumstances appropriately. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.